0: You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit providencetx.org.
1: Again, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. If you, ha- if you can and are able, would you please re- uh, stand for the reading of God's word? 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 says this. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the grace, uh, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Maybe may be seated.
0: good morning everyone I want to welcome you here my name is Cord and I'm one of the pastors here at Providence Community Church hope you've had a great weekend so far and uh, really hope that you and your family are gearing up for a great holiday week uh, Thanksgiving week and so uh, we're coming to the end of our sermon series on first Peter in the next couple of weeks uh, and this morning we are going to uh, walk with Peter as he turns his attention right at the end here in the last chapter uh, toward leadership. And in particular, leadership in the church. Um, in 2018, there was a there was an article put out by Forbes magazine, and it was it was uh, entitled uh, Five Reasons Why Leadership Is in Crisis." Uh, in the in the article, the author describes uh, just a general consensus across the globe that uh, leaders are in short supply, and then it tries to explain why, like why are leaders in such short supply and so he goes into issues uh he says five reasons but really they kind of extrapolate across a number of reasons he says things like uh ego and vanity are an issue uh, lack of self awareness uh he uncovers a lot of what masquerades as leadership uh today is actually just a lot of frenetic activity which I think we can kind of agree with right just the busyness this the to make sure we're doing something but we're not not necessarily doing uh anything productive so it feels like we're on a treadmill of sorts um he points out that leaders seem to have forgotten that leaders lead people, not organizations. And so even if you're the leader of an organization, you for, it's easy to forget that, you know, we, we use terms like this is a well-oiled machine, but it gives the wrong impression because ultimately organizations are not machines, they're people-oriented and real leaders lead real people. Um, he talks about needing foresight and uh, that leaders have to remember the main objective and and keep that main objective in sight so that accomplishment for accomplishment's sake isn't uh, what we're after, but actually trying to to accomplish something meaningful. And I think when I was reading through that uh, in relation to this morning's text, I thought, you know, 2020 has uncovered a lot of things. But but two things maybe that we can say is uh, maybe Forbes magazine was onto something here. You know, <laughs> like leaderships in crisis, we need more leaders. And then I think also a couple things that it's pointed out is that I think people are actually hungry for leadership. That uh, when all of the things happened and have happened this year that lots of people are looking for someone or some place to give them any sort of guidance as to what to how to make sense of the craziness that is our world and they need leaders and then people want leaders and this just points to the the scripture that talks about uh you know when you strike the shepherd uh, the sheep scatter you know this is an old Testament proverb or also says it's for lack of vision that my people perish you know there's no leaders that have the vision to share with the people and uh, and so that brings me to the next question who should step up in a globe that has a leadership crisis, if not the church. If we Christians truly believe what we believe about the gospel and also about the human heart, then we then we believe that it should be Christians, first and foremost, that step into leadership positions and not shy away from them. And so this morning, the topic that I want to cover is to unpack Peter's exhortation uh, to the church leaders here in Asia Minor. He's particularly talking to the Asian elders here and. And he wants to exhort them. And so I, I want to focus on being faithful to the context there, which is specifically towards the elders and pastors of these five Roman provinces. Um, but I also want to t- take some time and think of it in terms of general principle. And I hope that it helps you this morning. The general principles that Peter applies here to the elders are principles that Jesus laid out about leadership gen- like in general, that the Christians would lead and that how they lead would be completely different than the world and that they would not look like their gentile counterparts but that when christian leaders stepped into leadership roles they would do so in a manner that was like christ and that that was no small thing that that wasn't just an adjective that you added on you know we say we want to be like christ in whatever it is that we do but that it was actually very central to be like christ as a leader was central to what it meant to even be a leader you know we don't we can't just put christian on the front end of it and then that that gives us all the explanation no to be a christian leader was uh, foundational according to what Peter's going to say here. And so I want us to think through that. He's going to give us a script to follow, and then he's going to give us the secret to succeed as a Christian leader. And my prayer for us this morning is that God would give us ears to hear, that some of us would even maybe answer the call to step up as leaders, both inside and outside the church. Um, And so before we do that, what I'd like to do is just pray and pray that the Holy Spirit would help us and and that we wouldn't tune out if you think, well, I'm just not a leader. You know, that's, that's a case that I, I would like to combat against, is that feeling of like, well, that's just not me. And I would ask that you would submit yourself to the Spirit and that the Lord might work on you this morning and change your heart a bit on that. So if you'll bow your heads, I'll, I'll pray. Father, first, we, we come to you with thankful hearts. This week, as we are gearing up for a holiday celebration... We want to start here at the house of God and say, we're thankful, we're grateful to you, oh God, for all that you've given us, all that we take for granted, all of the specific areas of our lives this year that you have, you have met our needs and even some of our desires and wants, and you are truly an abundantly generous father. Thank you. And now we look for that which we need most, which Holy Spirit, it's your help. It's your help to come to your word humbly. We need your help, Holy Spirit, to come to your word with open ears and with an open heart and an open mind. We need your help, Lord, to come to your word and expect to be changed, expect to be challenged, and to not shy away from it. And so we do ask, Holy Spirit, would you do that for us and help us to leave out of here this morning, both encouraged but also convicted? Not condemned, Lord, because we have you, but convicted and compelled to be more like you. And last, Lord, we want to pray for, as your word says, all the leaders in high places. We ask, my God, that you would bless them, that you'd have your hand over them, and that, Lord, you would move on their hearts, that you would be with their minds, you would be with their speech, you'd be with their actions. We pray it would be for your glory and for the good of others. we ask all of these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. All right, so let's jump in here. First Peter chapter 5. If you got your Bibles, you can go there. It should be up on the screen behind me. I'm just going to read the first part here of verse number 1. Peter says, now notice here he's turning and this is this is in context of where he's already been. Uh, he's talked about suffering and, and he's he's talked about it at length. And then he's going to turn to the to the elders here and particularly exhort them and I think that that's key. And I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I think it's key because There's something about leadership in times of crisis that is essential, and Peter knows this. And so this this church, or these five Roman provinces with multiple elders and multiple probably congregations, are going through hardship. They're going through crisis as they are experiencing significant persecution. So he turns at the very end to the leaders, to the elders, and he says, I want to exhort you. I want to speak to you, because there is something about crisis that requires great leadership. And so he's going to turn to them. And here's what he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So first of all, who are elders? And this is important because it's it's kind of confusing. Sometimes we might think elders, and we automatically think older guys in the church that you see their pictures in the hallway, you know, and and, you know, their portraits, you know, maybe with their dog or something, and they're the ones who like make big, big budgetary decisions, but you don't really see them much. In the scriptures. I'm convinced that biblically we have lost a lot of what the elders were meant to be and do. And it's something we've tried to reclaim at Providence since we planted the church. And to, but to put it very simply, we use the words elder and pastor synonymously because in the scriptures you don't see that there's two different offices. We see that these offices are one and the same. To be an elder is to pastor and to pastor is to be an elder because they are the shepherds of the flock. That's what God calls them through the writers of the New Testament. They're interchangeable. And then secondarily, we don't believe in just one pastor for one flock. In fact, if you read the New Testament, it's always, uh, all of these letters are addressed to the elders, plural, at the church of fill in the blank. There's a plurality for a reason. That is because the only time in the New Testament where elders are ever addressed singularly, it's when they are addressing the chief elder, Jesus Christ. He's the only one who gets to sit on a throne over his church to lead. Underneath Christ, there's always a plurality because broken human beings, broken men need to have other broken men in order to make sure that their brokenness doesn't break out against everybody else. Does this make sense? There's a number of other reasons why plurality is important, but I think that's probably at the top. And at the top is because if you believe that you need a king in the church other than King Jesus, then you'll always end up giving your loyalties over to a man and that becomes idolatry and that never works out well doesn't work out in the Old Testament. It certainly doesn't work out in the New Testament. In the simplest terms, elders and pastors are servant leaders. They shepherd, they oversee, and they care for the local church. That's what, that's what elders do. They're tasked with feeding the flock with the word of God. This would be things like teaching protecting the flock from within and without. So it's when sheep want to harm each other. Parents, this is no different than when your kids are getting, have some infighting. And you know that infighting is both necessary for their growth and inevitable. And so you let your kids fight unless they're going to do imminent harm. Like my son with my daughter now at the playground, it's fine whenever they're getting, you know, angry at one another. It's not fine when he's trying to put her on top of the (laughs) treehouse. She doesn't know it's punishment, but this is his way of then leaving her there, you know, on top of the roof. And so you have to make sure that you're keeping the fighting within to a reasonable minimum. But also elders protect from without. That means that there are outside influences. The Bible calls them wolves or even serpents that try to infiltrate into the church to simply do harm. There's many examples that I could give this from being an elder myself, but these things happen and you would never imagine some of the stuff that happens. Paul even addresses in the New Testament, he said there were men in the New Testament times that literally just tried to get into the church to find weak-willed women to prey upon them because they, were, had, because they had virtues that were Christ-like, like they were kind women, they were loving women, they believed the best, and that these men were so evil that they thought this is the easiest place for me to pick off girls. Let me tell you something, nothing's changed. In thousands of years, there are still these creepos, they do this kind of stuff. In the New Testament, Paul said there's also people who do not believe in Christ. They hate Christ. They hate everything to do with Christ, but they'll find their way to infiltrate the church in order to sow seeds of division and false theology in the church. Just, you would never think that would happen. Well, why? Why don't, just, why don't they just leave people alone? If they hate Christ, why even come to the church? That sounds reasonable, but you're not talking about reasonable people. You're not talking about a world that we live in, which is full of sin and brokenness. So these kind of things happen too. Elders care for the flock with prayer, with intentionality. They lead the flock with things like management, you know, things that you would never think even are important, like stewardship, oversight, my, my, you know, minute things like the toilets are not working. Well, somebody has to have to be able to manage how those things get to get fixed. Just as a side note, you know, one time I was, I was, uh, I was going to be a best man at a friend of mine's wedding. And there was gonna be another pastor that did the wedding. So I was like, oh sweet, this is the first time. And it was here at the church. And so I was gonna be the best man. Well, anyway, there's a series of events that the pastor couldn't do it. So my friend asked me, hey man, will you still be my best man? But will will you do my wedding? And I'm like, I'm like, no problem, you know, I'll do it, you know, and so I'm already kind of like gearing up for this, you know, I have all the best man role, which is like to be encouraging, and you know, husbands get weird and like cold sweats before they get married, it's always a weird thing, I don't know why the girls aren't more scared, because you're marrying up, like 98% of the time, I'm like, she shouldn't be marrying you, what are what are you scared about, you know, but I got my job, you know, it's so to encourage him, make sure he's okay, and you know, and then I also, I'm thinking through, I also have to walk up there and then, and then, you know, the the hard thing about marriage ceremonies, it's the thing everybody remembers for like the rest of their lives. So like what I'm doing right now, I'm going to preach, you know, another 50 times in the next year. So you guys will probably forget my, you know, silly things that I say. Weddings? Not so. Not so. People don't forget, you know, you can't mess those things up. So I'm, as I'm working through all of this, I also have a responsibility as an elder here. You know, we have a, a policy in place that, you know, elders oversee, uh, which is the facility when it's in the usage of either members or non-members for weddings. And so I'm, so I'm, I'm kind of like the point of contact in the building uh, to an extent. And so as I'm thinking through all of these things, someone comes up to me and says, uh, the toilets are clogged in the women's restroom. I, I literally have my face mic on, I have my tuxedo on. I'm like, is there anybody else that you can ask about? No, but we need to fix this like now. So I'm like, okay, you know, and I tell, I tell my friend, and they're, they're like, dude, it's about to start. So I'm like, okay, I go in there. I'm like rolling up my tuxedo pants, and I'm plunging toilets with my microphone on, you know? And then I, I'm like quick, I run back up here, and I, you know, walk down the aisle, you know, be the best man. And I tell you that story because that's a lot like what eldering's like, you know? It's the dirty, it's the grimy, it's has got all of these different roles, all these different responsibilities that you may have in order to do what's good for the church. Um, I also say that to say like pastor and elders are, they are perfectly human. And to to say that is to say they're imperfect. They're perfectly human beings. You know, just regular people who make mistakes, have real weaknesses, have real fears, have real anxieties. And um, they're simply called and commissioned by God before the church to be servant leaders in the church. But they're not some like special, you know, walking around with the Midas touch spiritually. That's just not how it works. Now, What's Peter doing? He's addressing this crew, these elder pastors, and he wants to turn to them and he wants to exhort them. He wants to admonish them. He wants to fortify them. He wants to challenge them. And he's going to give them a script to follow. He's going to tell them, hey, I want you guys to lead in this time, but here's how I want you to lead. So let's jump into verse number two. Actually, before we do that, listen to how he announces himself. He says these things. I am a fellow elder. I am a witness to the sufferings of Christ, and I'm a partaker of the glory. So what is he doing here? He's he's grabbing mutual camaraderie among these men. I love that Peter does not say, I am the chief elder among you. He could probably say this, right? Because Peter has walked with Jesus. He was a part of his inner circle. He was, you know, one of the elders at the first church in Jerusalem. I mean, Peter's he was at Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council. I mean, this guy carries some clout. He doesn't say, I come as your, you know, your vanguard of the faith, chief elder. No. He says, I'm your fellow elder, mutual camaraderie, equality amongst these brothers. Then he says, he's a witness to the sufferings of Christ. He was among the most elite council in the whole world, namely the 12 disciples. He watched Jesus walk to the cross. He watched Jesus be arrested in Gethsemane. He watched Jesus do miracles. He watched Jesus feed 5,000 people. He watched Jesus raise his friend from the dead. This guy is a part of a really elite council of elders. If Peter were here today, you and me both would want him to take the face Mike, not me. Then he says he's a partaker in the glories of Christ. This is real throughout the letter of 1 Peter to these churches. That is, he sets his eyes on the new Jerusalem, where he is going to be with Christ forever. Now, I want to make a point here. In the book of Revelation, it says that there are 12 seats for the apostles, and there are 12 seats for the prophets, and that they will have 24 elders in heaven. Every, most commentators and most uh, theologians agree, Peter has a seat among the 24 elders of heaven. Now that's incredible to think about. <laughs> this guy's coming to them and calling himself a fellow elder, and yet he is going to be a part of the elder council of heaven. <laughs> and he is going to be the one to give them these admonitions. He's going to be the one to give them these encouragements. Peter, to put it lightly, is uniquely qualified to speak about leadership. <laughs> That's putting it lightly. He's uniquely qualified to speak to these Asian elders. Now let's jump into what his admonitions are. I do believe that where he, where he starts is where, he's gonna, where we're going to end this morning. And we're only going to be about halfway through these first 11 verses. Next week we'll finish. But I think we're gonna, where he starts here is really the, the key. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering those in your, over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Let's walk through these one by one. The first one, I think, is the biggest idea. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. There's no way to truly understand the gravity of this admonition, apart from having a biblical knowledge, from Genesis to Revelation, of the shepherd archetype, which runs throughout the whole Bible. The archetypal shepherd is a central theme from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. These are all shepherds. These men, that was their primary vocation. They're the patriarchs of Israel. All the way back, you could go to Cain and Abel and whose sacrifice was accepted from God. It was the shepherd Abel. And Cain, his brother, was angry about this, that God would accept the shepherd Abel, his brother's sacrifice and not his own. Joseph is born into a family of shepherds in Genesis, and then he's sold into Egyptian slavery. So it's like he starts as a shepherd, he ends up to becoming second only to Pharaoh. If you fast forward to the very next story, it's like Joseph's story in reverse, where Moses is actually raised in the palace of Egypt, and then he finds himself exiled out into the desert, and what does he end up doing? Shepherding. And where does God call him? God does not call him in the palace. God calls him when he's out in the desert shepherding and he finds himself in front of a bush that is consumed. It's burning, but it's not consumed is what the Bible says, which, you know, go figure on that one. I don't even know what that means, but that's where God meets him as a shepherd. Of course, King David's the most famous Old Testament archetypal shepherd that we find. In his famous showdown with Goliath, David refuses to carry the armor of Saul, his king, because he says he he hasn't tested it. He's like, he can't even walk around in it. He sheds the armor. He doesn't rely on the armor strength. Instead, he relies upon, quote, from him, the strength that God had provided him when he was in the fields protecting the sheep, his father's sheep. He says, I've already killed the bear and the lion with my bare hands, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be no different than them. He relies on his strength that he learned and was given by God to shepherd his father's sheep. Of course, Jesus supersedes David in that Jesus is the most central and pivotal biblical figure of everyone to be deemed a shepherd. Now, I want to point this out. Jesus's vocation actually with his dad was not a shepherd. He was born in the city of Bethlehem, so he was born in the city of David, so he was born to a shepherd king named David in his line. But, but Jesus himself, because of his, his earthly father, Joseph, he was a carpenter. He worked as a carpenter. But in the book of John, Jesus regularly will refer to himself with shepherding allegories, and then he just comes right out and says it. He says, I am, in one of his famous I am statements, I am the good shepherd. This is what Jesus says. No one snatches any of my sheep out of the Father's hand. I'm the good shepherd, I'm the door of the sheep. Now, the script of leadership that Peter gives here starts with a word that our world is almost completely unfamiliar with. I just told you how, the, how throughout all of the Bible you see shepherd, but if I had to guess, you probably have never, if you just pick up an everyday New York Times best-selling book on leadership, never heard the word shepherd used. <laughs> if you ask the world about leadership, they rarely are going to use shepherd as a noun or an adjective. These are not, this is not what we consider to be great leaders. We consider great leaders to be strong, maybe even bombastic, maybe even authoritative, maybe even powerful. We don't consider shepherd when we think leader. And yet the Bible counts that as the central. The Bible counts that as essential to leadership. Now, don't kid yourself. Shepherds are tough men. They're responsible to seek out lost sheep, gather scattered sheep, watch over and defend sheep from wolves, feed them, water them, lead the sheep to green pasture. Shepherds are not soft guys. These guys have difficult jobs. They often live outdoors and particularly Middle Eastern Eastern shepherds live outdoors in some really harsh conditions to care for the sheep. And Peter starts here when he talks about shepherding, because I think that this is what sets the tone for the rest of. His admonitions. It sets the guidelines, it sets the parameters, it sets the categories. He says, if you're going to be a godly leader, you have to see yourself as a shepherd. You have to see yourself who, on one hand, has to be tough and on another hand, has to be tender. You have to be tender with the sheep, you have to be tough for the sheep. Every parent gets this, right? Hopefully, if you're a dad, particularly when you think about uh, tough and tender, you're thinking about your daughter, you know? You're like, you're tender with your daughter, you're tough for your daughter. You're tender with your daughter. You're tough with them. The first boyfriend shows up to your door, you know? Maybe you get tender with him later, like but after you're dead, in you're like a letter. <laughs> but this is, what, this is what Peter thought of when he thought of leadership. There has to be an element of roughness to your hands that you're willing to get down to the grime and work, you know? The plumbing side of you that's in the, the women's toilets at the wedding. And there has to be a tender side of you, which is... Doing the vows and a beautiful wedding ceremony as two become one. And, you know, even shedding a tear at someone's dinner table whenever they're talking about their suffering. These, these two things go hand in hand. And it's not one or the other. It's not like if you want to be a, a leader, you got to be tough. Or if you want to be a follower, then you can be tender. It's like, no, you, uh, true leaders are both. And that's what a shepherd is. Then Peter's going to go on. He says, shepherd the flock of, of God that's among you exercising oversight, See, oversight here is, it's like a cousin to shepherding because it has the, the responsibility of the flock in mind. But oversight further underscores that a loving, a loving shepherd has to exercise some level of authority. Oswald Chambers says, those who have most powerfully and permanently influenced their generation have been seers. People who have seen more and farther than others, persons of faith, because faith is vision. So he's saying to oversee, you have to see further down the road than the people that you're leading. Exercising oversight assumes authority and power because it's not merely seeing or having the vision, but exercising the authority necessary to see that vision come to pass, right? So he's going to take that next step here. He's going to say that, yes, you have to be a shepherd, but you have to actually have to exercise some semblance of authority. And I want to say this, like, Power itself is not evil, but power in the hands of the wrong leaders can be the worst possible scenario. We've seen this play out over and over and over again. But I think that the wrong overcorrection is to say that therefore we should all reject power altogether. No, because don't kid yourself at any time that you say that, well, I'm not interested in any power. Someone will be interested in power. And usually the people that are really interested in the power are the ones you don't want to have it. Like we learned this as early on as like the playground, right? It's like you're not interested in picking teams and then somebody else picks teams and you're like, oh no, why am I on this team? Anytime you lay down any power, just know someone will take it up again. Now, if we know the words of Jesus, then we know that power is to be wielded in a servant-like manner. Jesus says that we don't lord it over, but we're gonna get there in a second. Then he goes on, he says, he says, You don't need to do this under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Leaders should not be compelled to do this, but they should do so willingly. Another way to put that would be leaders, Peter says, are like volunteers, not like drafted soldiers. You're going to struggle to exercise your leadership in the church well, Peter says, if you do so like you're drafted to do so, you must do so. Now, don't get me wrong here. There are times where you say, I wish anybody else would have to be in this position or anyone else would be in this position decision-making role because it's difficult and the burden falls to you. You even see this when you go back in history, you can read some of the great leaders like of the World War II era. And they would say, they're looking around, hoping that someone else would take on that mantle, but they, they know they must. Winston Churchill was famous for saying this. He says, you know, woe be it to me that whenever the burden of leadership is coming and it's about to fall that I don't step up and take it and meet the moment and rise to the moment. Why did he say this? Because he says, all of, all of London was hanging in the balance to him, right? So for Winston Churchill, it was, you know, during the battle and the bombings of London that they call upon him after they had kicked him out of parliament, they call him back and say, hey, we made a mistake. Will you come back? How easy would it have been like, yeah, now you get what you deserve. I've been warning you about this guy. Winston Churchill famously shows up. So I'm not saying that there's not an element of compelling, but what Peter's aiming at here is that glad voluntary service is God's standard for pastors. And Peter's one of those, right? Peter's one of those. Okay, now he's going to go on. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now, if you've turned on like TV and like TV pastors, then you're probably wondering like what has gone awry. Because pastoring can, in some cases, and has become a very lucrative business. And Peter is aiming at this early on, early first century churches saying that leadership and particularly pastoral leadership cannot be for shameful gain. If you look into the Greek of shameful gain, most of it is lending itself towards financial shameful gain. Now, some elders might be paid, but the motivation for pastoring cannot be money. It's why we believe here at Providence that not every pastor, not every elder is a paid pastor. Pastors who are motivated and eagerly motivated by the spirit to lovingly shepherd the flock will always look out for not only what is best for people and truly best for people, but they will also do what is honoring unto God because this third party influence of mammon, the God of money, isn't clutching at their heart and soul to make them make decisions they would never make otherwise. Now there's obviously other ways to gain shamefully from leadership But I think what Peter's saying here is there has to be an eagerness that drives leadership simply beyond the financial. Okay, what about this last one? Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Isn't it interesting that the opposite of domineering is example? I find that interesting. What is he saying here? Leaders can't be hungry for power like the world. Christian Leadership Principle 101 is that people are not subjects to be ruled. People are brothers and sisters to be loved and served. And if we lose sight of that, we fail miserably. One of the pastors of the old uh, Westminster uh, Tabernacle said this, Pride ever lurks just at the heels of power. Even a little authority is prone to turn a meek walk into the most offensive strut. Aggressive leaders have a danger they must watch out for here. There are some people who are combative, and although that may get you ahead in certain ventures in the world, it never leads to life and flourishing. Oswald Chambers would go on to say, if you would rather pick a fight than solve a problem, please do not consider leading in the church. (laughs) If you'd rather pick a fight than solve a problem, please don't consider leadership. Why does he say that? There's plenty of problems to go around and there are few solutions. There's even fewer solution makers in the world. Sometimes we mistake people who can pick out problems as leaders. That's not leadership. Leadership is then taking the next step in order to solve the problem in a manner in which blesses those who are in the problem. Now that's difficult, that's hard, that requires patience, that requires understanding, that requires time, that requires, check this one out, listening to people. (laughs) It requires praying and asking for that which you don't have, namely wisdom from above. And that's much more difficult than just picking a fight or, or pointing out problems. Now notice here the answer. The answer to domineering leadership is not what? It's not soft, ineffective leadership. He's not saying, don't be domineering, be soft. No. He says, be examples. Now, there's a few reasons why I think this is key. Number one, if your focus is to be an example, you will work to avoid hypocrisy. That's number one. Have you guys seen some of the hypocrisy that's been kind of like, you know, masquerading right now in the political realm? it, It makes people angry, right? It's whenever you say one thing and then you do another. And leadership always has this issue. If you're going to lay down certain rules or boundaries, which are absolutely necessary, you also have to make sure that you're doing your best to fulfill those same obligations. The only way you can do this is by looking to be an example to the flock or an example in your leadership. Number two, this is key. When you inevitably fail to hold up your own standard, you will be humbled and more merciful, which is a great safeguard against dictatorial leadership, okay, so whenever you actually try to be an example and if you're if you're in the room right now and you 've tried to lead here 's what you know you felt you fall short at times, and when you fall short, listen th- this is a critical moment. The answer is not to double down on how awesome you are, or to try and maneuver a way in which you can communicate that you 're still just as amazing as Everybody's been saying that you are or that you believe you are. It's instead to be humbled and say, I too have fallen short. And this will, this will ensure that you rethink some of the really hard line decisions that you make in light of the fact that you can't even hold up to your own end of the bargain. It's a safeguard against the worst kinds of leadership because you yourself will know, you know what, like I'm actually a broken, fallen person too. If you aren't interested in leading by an example, you're going to accept hypocrisy and you'll just lead with an iron fist, right? Do as I say, not as I do. But if you're trying to lead by example, you won't fall into this. Okay. The Barna Group came out with this... uh, the statistic it's 82% of young adults. that were surveyed by the Barner group felt that society was in a leadership crisis. I went on to another one a year later that was done by another group. And it said up to 90% of young adults, 90% of young adults were under 30, I think said we're in a, we're in a leadership crisis. They're very scared and anxious. Three in 10 young adults said they had never considered themselves leaders at all. Now, That may seem like not a big deal to you, but it should be a big deal to you. That means three out of 10 young people said they had never found themselves in a leadership position or even deemed to consider themselves a leader, ever. American churches, according to the Barna Group, are performing below replacement levels concerning the development of new leaders, pastors in particular. This means that they're not developing enough pastors just to replace the churches they currently have. Well below. Check this one out. In 1992, the average age of a pastor was 42 years old. In 2017, just three years ago, I would imagine that this would be even higher now. The average age of a pastor is 54, 12 years older. Why? Not a lot of eagerness to jump into leadership. There are more full-time pastors, listen to this, over the age of 65 than there are under the age of 40. That's an incredible thought. Now, why are leaders in the church so important? And they are important, and I hope I can bring this to your mind. Your children learn Christ primarily in the church and in the church community. Don't get me wrong. You're the primary disciples of your kids, but where is that reinforced? It's with leadership in the church. Teenagers grow in Christ in the church. Marriages are both started and strengthened and sustained in the church. Pain and suffering is battled and comforted and counseled in the church. We're talking about how does life happen and how does life continue on to flourish? It happens in the ministry, gospel ministry of the church. Now listen to me, then where are the leaders in the church? If we don't have them, we must develop more leaders. If we don't have them, then how can we expect that these major questions or these major hardships would be faced? Now, the good news about Providence here is we're really multi-generational church, which is a real gift because I'm a, I'm a young pastor. And we're committed to growing and developing leaders for the long haul, which is great. I think that we have to also say, though, that that means that some of us who are seating today that don't consider yourselves leaders must actually take that next step. Maybe some are pastors in the room. Maybe others are future deacons or ministry leaders. Maybe others are leaders who will serve on the mission field. Maybe others might be called to lead in politics or in medicine or in business or in any place of your sphere of influence. But I just want to bring the church to your mind today because if we do not have truly solid leaders in the church, how can we expect to have Christian leaders influencing the world around us? Listen, Peter gives us the script here. He is giving us this Not this worldly script. He's giving us what makes us a truly fruitful and successful leader right here. And so the question I'd like to ask before we close is, where is God calling you to develop and or learn to lead? Or what leaders have you encouraged, prayed for, and thanked lately? Because they probably need it. Okay, now verse four is my favorite part of this of all because it's really the hope that's given. Verse four, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The chief shepherd is coming. I love that Peter always comes back to this. He's always constantly trying to remind us, hey, Jesus is coming back. Now, why does he do this? A few reasons come to mind. One, by, by by Peter bringing the chief shepherd up, he's reminding the elders to whom the church ultimately belongs and to whom they are ultimately accountable. Now, that's heavy, isn't it? He's reminding the elders, you don't own the church. Jesus owned the church. He's coming back. A really intense analogy is that Jesus calls the church his bride, and then he gives over to the elders the stewardship of his bride. Now, if you're married in the room, think of this. You come back from having served overseas in the military, and you ask one of your buddies, Will you look over my family and my wife? That's an intense expectation. And when the husband comes back, he's going to figure out, How did you treat the bride? So Peter's doing two things. He's, doing, he's being encouraging. He's also being massively, massively, it's a big admonition here, meaning Jesus is showing to show back up to his church, and he wants to know, the chief shepherd's going to want to know how the under shepherds have been doing. Few things are more humbling than this thought. Also, I think it's a helpful reminder for the church and for the elders that it is unwise for the church to see elders as human saviors, and it's unnecessary for elders to try to be human saviors because we have the chief shepherd. That's a good reminder, isn't it? Really, the church needs elders, but doesn't need them in an ultimate way to save them. Jesus is a good shepherd. And even when human beings fail you, Jesus will never fail you. And it's a good reminder for elders and for leaders to not try to be Jesus because Jesus has got this thing sewn up. He's doing a pretty good job. As Peter's regularly done in this epistle, he reminds the believers of their eternal reward. He's reminding them that Christ is going to reward them with an eternal crown of glory. And finally, by bringing Jesus back to mind, Peter is giving them the secret to real Christian leadership. James Gray says, when we measure ourselves by the life of Jesus who humbled himself on the cross, we are overwhelmed with the shabbiness, even the vileness of our hearts. And we cry, boasting excluded, pride I abase, I'm only a sinner saved by grace. Peter bringing Jesus up reminds us that we need Jesus to lead. The secret to success as a leader is to look to the chief shepherd. Christ is both worthy of sacrifice because he sacrificed for us. He motivates servant leadership. Christ alone empowers servant leadership. He exemplified servant leadership. And then the final thing, I told you we would end where we started. I believe that Peter star, he starts with shepherd the flock among you. And in verse four, he says, the chief shepherd showing up because there's a, there's a specific moment in Peter's life where he understood what it was gonna mean to shepherd the flock of God. I wanna read to you out of John chapter number 21. And it's just a few verses. John 21 as you're turning there I'll just catch you up this is after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus peter has denied christ 3 times he's run away from his calling and he's tried to go back to be to be a fisherman only and jesus shows up on the shores of the sea of galilee while peter is fishing and they know that it's jesus because john turns him and says it's the lord peter jumps into the water he swims to the lord Jesus says, "Sit down. Let's have breakfast." He's at a charcoal fireplace, which is this this. Uh, it's a nod to the place in which Peter had stood around the fireplace uh, around the Sanhedrin, in the Sanhedrin council near the temple and denied Jesus three times. He feeds him breakfast, and then he's going to have this interaction with with Peter. Now, Peter's already said, "I'm going to go be a fisherman again. I'm not going to. I'm not being you know whatever it is that Jesus was trying to make me to be." Watch this interaction. Starting in verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus turned to Simon Peter and said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So what does he say? Feed my lambs, shepherd my flock. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. said to him, what? Tend my sheep, shepherd my flock. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said, A third time, do you love me? Why is Peter grieved? Three times you denied me. Three times I ask you if you love me. Peter's in tears. Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. Jesus said to him what? Feed my sheep, shepherd my flock. The best shepherds are those who have seen the chief shepherd suffer for the flock, have faced the depths of their own sin and depravity, and who have been called by grace to get back up again and tend the flock of God true leader has experienced the gospel, and I mean experienced it, known they need the grace of God, not just thought it was theoretically good. I mean, they've needed it personally, and they've been met by Jesus in their need, and they've been filled by the grace of God. Let it wash over them. They've had to face their own real sin and then get back up and follow Jesus all over again. That's the best kind of leader. A shorthand way to put that is true leaders love God, and they love people. Peter, do you love me? Then tend my sheep. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll I'll pray for us. Father, we, we all sit now under the watchful eye of your son, Jesus, the good shepherd. Here we stand all as sheep. We thank you that you are the chief shepherd. Jesus, that not one of us will be broken or marred, or harmed by the enemy without you restoring us and confirming us and establishing us. Thank you, Jesus. And now, Holy Spirit, would you begin to stir in our hearts both a gratitude for your leadership, but also a challenge to tend your sheep, to lead where you call us, Lord. For the parents in the room, would you help them to know they have a call to lead in their home? And they would do do so with shepherd-like attention. Lord, for those who have leadership positions in their jobs, would you tell them that they're not just called to lead there with no forethought to their faith, but that they would lead as Christians first and foremost, God, give them that heart. And Lord, for those who are under the sound of my voice, who you desire, would you begin to call them to lead in your church, Lord? Because if we don't have more leaders here, how can we expect to have any more leaders In the world, my God, would you begin to call people now by your matchless grace to lead. We love you, Lord, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.